Welcome to the Missions Podcast, where we explore your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined by Scott Dunford, Vice President of Mobilization and Communication, also here at ABWE, back from a, both of us, a week out on the road, uh, doing What's some new? work. What's <laughs> Yeah, what else is new? Uh, but it's good to be back here in the studio. And Scott, I'm really excited in particular about this guest, um, not only because I've listened to some of his resources and podcasts, but, um, you know, we've mentioned on the show a few times um, some issues related to trauma related to psychology um, and Mm -hmm. things like that, which can be taboo subjects within evangelicalism. Right. Um, And, and maybe for good reason, you know, there's, there's a negative side to some of those things as we maybe approach the human mind from a a, a perspective that isn't fully biblical. That's maybe just purely naturalistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Scott, I know you were also in the, in the foster care system for a while. And and me and my wife, we just adopted our son through the foster care system. Mm -hmm. So we've even thought about the idea of trauma, and how it affects you become from a really personal, uh, visceral level in our own family and home. And what's interesting is that I think as we talk about missions and we, we talk about helping goers, you know, there's other trauma and, and difficulty associated with just uprooting your entire life and putting yourself in a culture where you've never been. You don't know the language. You're surrounded by people um, that, that you can't really interact with. And by taking your family through all of those things, too, I'm sure you can relate to some of that from your time serving overseas. Sure. And what we're going to talk about today gets right into that because missionaries do face trauma. And a lot of times that's trauma that one we struggle with in our theology. And uh, also um, we deal with a culture that is that struggles to, to really articulate those things well. Uh, we don't feel like there's a safe place to talk about the traumatic things that might happen to us. And yet they do impact us deeply. And if we don't deal with them biblically and rightly, um, we're going to we're going to struggle for sure. So our guest today, without further ado, is Dr. Paul C. Maxwell, Ph.D. Um, Paul is uh, not only the sole proprietor of selfwire.org, as well as uh, Theofit, which is a resource devoted to uh, fitness. Um, but, Paul, uh, your your background is, is probably going to be interesting to some of our listeners. We have connections at Moody. You went to Moody for your undergrad, and then you came over to the East Coast and did your uh, master's work at Westminster. And then you went back um, to TED's, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, for your PhD, which you just finished uh, a month or two ago. Is that about accurate? Yep, that's right. Paul, tell us a little bit more about yourself and uh, not only that theological journey, because even thinking through some of those different schools, those are three very different schools, um, but your theological journey and, and your journey of, of what made you interested and qualified to speak on the topic of trauma within the context of evangelicalism and conservative gospel-centered theology. Yeah, that, that's good. That's a really good setup. I appreciate you uh, asking those questions. So yeah, I gr- grew up in um, upstate New York, about an hour north of the city, Hyde Park, New York. Uh, grew up Catholic home, nominal Catholic home, went to Catholic school. Uh, uh, parents got divorced pretty young. Then so so my mom forced me to go to confirmation class and all our all in middle school, all our moms were sort of forcing us to go to confirmation class, you know. And so so what the one condition we had was like, okay, we'll go, but we have to be able to pick the church. And these were all single moms or dad, you know, dads weren't really around. So they were like, fine, whatever. So we just picked the church where all the prettiest girls from our class went to their confirmation class. And so we went <laughs> to this United Methodist church and it was of course, liberal mainline. Nobody was really talking about the gospel there, but what they did was they kind of like outsourced their theology. And what they did was they just took these, the, their youth, kids on a lot of retreats. And I ended up at a youth for Christ retreat. I don't know if you're familiar with youth for Christ, Mm -hmm. Billy Graham. Yeah. That kind of thing. And, um, uh, I ended up hearing the gospel for the first time age 14 came to Christ. Uh, and then I think I was the only kid that did. And, uh, uh, yeah, I just ended up on a crazy journey for, for the next four years or so. I ended up in a, uh, a charismatic sort of Pentecostal oriented church. And that was great, but was sort of lacking for me in terms of understanding of scripture. And so a lot of deep questions that I was developing about God, the relationship between divine sovereignty and human freedom. I mean, there's just an, you know, innumerable amount of mysterious, uh, 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 issues and questions that arise from reading the scripture that are, are 
uh, as mysterious as they are essential to the Christian life. And that was an odd paradox for me, you know, well, aren't you supposed to be able to understand these things if they're so crucial to how we relate to God? And yet at the bottom of each of them seems to be some sort of impenetrable mystery. And I didn't like that. So I wanted to get as tactile and understanding I could of God. And I wanted to get up close and personal as I could. So I went to study biblical languages at Moody and, uh, and that was great. And then, and then through that, I became acquainted with the works of Greg Beal. And at that time he built the biblical exegesis program at Wheaton. And I wanted to go to Wheaton to study with Beal because he's a sort of expert on the use of the old Testament and the new Testament. You can mm-hmm. kind of double down on your Greek and Hebrew at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's an intense Beale program. Said, hey, yeah. I'm leaving Wheaton. I'm going to Westminster. So boom, I go to Westminster to study with Beal there. I just become this radical reformed Calvinist, which is, it is what it is. It, you know, it is what it is. I won't try to, hard, hard to avoid at Westminster. <laughs> that, well, that's the area that? of breathing. Hard to avoid that at Westminster. It is really hard because you've got so many smart and excellent thinkers. there working so close to the biblical text, making very reformed arguments. And it's, it's hard not to absolutely. And so, so there, but it was also at that, at Westminster that I started, uh, uh, coming into contact with this trauma concept and started coming to terms with some, boyhood sexual abuse in my own story and how that was kind of shaping my experience of Calvinism, my willingness to sort of throw myself into different theological camps and seeing how trauma kind of framed my attachment style and therefore my style of belief or my religious attachment style and end up having a real crisis of faith because I, re- I saw so many parallels between what uh, the way that an abusive system works and the way that the Calvinist system construes the relationship between God and man. And the, this theodicy problem is essentially, well, God hurts you for good. And I thought, well, God hurts you for good. That sounds a lot like an abuse script. That mm. sounds a lot like a script that you would hear from sort of a battered woman defending her husband, right? So how do we differentiate these two things, right? Is it is it okay to hurt somebody for good? Are reasons enough? Do the ends justify the means? And so I started look, looking into these ethical models for uh, conceiving of the problem of evil, and and the way and, and and those same ethical models kind of translated into configurations for trauma. And I realized that. What trauma studies really lacks is an ability to uh, play fluently with deep philosophical and theological concepts, which really are at the heart of trauma. Hmm. And yet in theology, I saw real insensitivity to the personal experience of the believer, which was really essential to resolving some of these traumatic issues. So I wanted to bring those two worlds into contact. I wanted to bring the the idealism of theology and the narrativism of, of, of traumatic studies. Uh, and I wanted to bring these two worlds of theology and psychology together so that we could speak about both of these issues or at least speak about the intersection of these issues fluently and competently in a way that's informed by both disciplines without compromising the principles of either one, because I wanted the best of traumatology and I wanted the best of reformed theology coming into contact and whatever was left, that's what I wanted to, to build my new theology on. And whatever, whatever chance my faith stood at enduring the crisis that I was going through, uh, uh, this crisis of faith where I was bitter toward God and angry at him, not just for childhood abuse, but for new sufferings in my life. My father overdosed oxycodone and alcohol and uh, other things all sort of happened at the same time. And I was thinking, does God really have a good reason for this? Really? Mm-hmm. And then I, and then I sort of anal- started analogizing that out to other, other uh, evil things that occur in life. And I started thinking, well, what are the theological strategies which really can account for these things? Is there an answer? Because you know what? I've got an answer for a lot of the things that I thought were mysterious. They're not mysterious. People just haven't thought about them enough. And you know what? There are answers out there. There are a lot of answers that the text of scripture and the history of theology speaks very clearly to. People talk about the mysteriousness of God. And yes, he is very mysterious. And we do have a doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. But I don't conflate the limit of my understanding with the incomprehensibility of God. I'm not so arrogant to assume that the limit of my intellect, well, that's just simply the line of incomprehensibility. No, I push further into it. And I've understood a lot. And I wanted to apply the same thing to theodicy. Is there, is there a vindication for God? Mm. And, and that I really saw at the heart of what a lot of people call religious trauma. Or when and, and religious trauma can be two things. Religious trauma can either be that you go through a uh, uh, a traumatic experience, which is not uh, religiously or theologically qualified in nature, 
but you go through it as a believer and it threatens your attachment to God in some way. And so the trauma that you experience is a trauma of faith or a lot, what a lot of people call a crisis of faith, right? Another kind of religious trauma is one in which the trauma you endure is essentially religious, meaning you're abused by a priest or you're abused by a church or a pastor, Right. Or, or the or the the content with which you were abused uh, uh, conceptually or ideologically or emotionally or relationally was religious. Right. Where, whether that that can happen very easily for, with children. Right. They can uh, suffer sort of religious abuse by parents who mishandle theology and over, are, are overzealous with their theology. And and that actually threatens faith directly because it sort of corrupts all of the concepts which could be used for good in faith. But it sort of poisons them and toxifies them. And so that so. Both of those things can be religious trauma. And and I wanted to understand, well, what is that and how do we overcome that and how do we engage the questions which really constitute the crisis that religious trauma poses, not only to the church, but to individual believers? Well, and I, I also want to frame this from the outset. This isn't just a category that uh, people who consider themselves more Calvinistic have to deal with within our organization, right, right. for instance, as well. You know, it's, it's just anybody with a high regard for Scripture— um, anyone that considers themselves genuinely Bible believing has to wrestle with these issues of suffering and theodicy and some of those issues. Uh, you've written for Desiring God, but what's funny is also that that you mentioned to us before we came on uh, to the recording here that you flunked out of your missions class at Moody. Um, so naturally, <laughs> yeah. we're bringing you on to the missions podcast um, as an expert. But, but an on, you're going to get an honorary missions credit for this. Yeah. Oh, it. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's honorary, but you know that's what we do. As Baptist, <laughs> yeah, I'll have to forward that to my missions professor. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, you're coming full circle. But yeah. um, you know, before we get into some of the implications of an understanding of trauma and suffering that, that people might want to use or at least be aware of as they think about missions and serving overseas. There's a lot of chatter about trauma, obviously. There's a lot of pop psychology on the internet, um, things like that. And it's also become this all-encompassing category that can be you know, an, an excuse that excuses my behavior, gets me out of personal responsibility, things like that. So briefly, how would you define trauma uh, specifically from a biblical standpoint? Mm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I'm, let's see. Um... So those are two different questions, and and uh, it's a good it's a good question. Actually, actually, it's such a good question because it's so, it asks so much in such a compact space. But I, so just for the sake, for for my own sake, I'm going to unpack it into a couple different questions. So sure. it's a good question. Uh, allow me the liberty of sort of uh, disambiguating the the concepts there. So well, can we hold off on your missions credit until we see how you do with this? Comp- <laughs> yes, oh, this okay. is the, the oral right. exam. Yeah, this the, is the oral exam. This matters. Right. So okay. I mean, I'm getting back to you. Yeah. Um, So, so trauma is well. We have to distinguish two things first of all, because because immediately when you start talking about trauma, you are really you're talking about technical terms, but you're also talking about a term which has become uh, uh, so expediently popularized in American culture over the past ten years, perhaps more than any other word. It has become the most common. I mean, it has gone from place one hundred to place number one in terms of popular psychological terms or terms which psychologize popular culture trauma and. Victim, with the rise of victimhood culture, has become the essential political tool of the ideological left in order to measure intersectionality politics and has become front and center not only in the in, in the American consciousness, but in our political platform and, and playground as well. So having said that, what is trauma? The people who use it politically really don't they don't use it in this technical sense and, and even in the popular sense, they don't really use it in a specific way. So I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. And in order to understand trauma, you have to, to disambiguate trauma or you have to differentiate trauma from PTSD. So trauma is the overwhelming quality of an experience, right? So if you go to a trauma center, right, it's, it's, a, it's a psychological term that we borrow from medicine. And, and medicine gets its words, like most medical terms, come from Latin and Greek, right? So, so, there, so there is a Greek word trauma, and I'll get to that in a second. And that's literally what, the, what it is. It's, it's 
tau, rho, alpha, uh, 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 upsilon, uh, uh, whatever. Uh, oh my goodness. I'm, 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 I'm missing out my Greek alphabet, but, but it's literally just transliterated. It's the Greek yeah. term. It literally is just spelled trauma. So, so, uh, but the med- medical world took it and all it means is to pierce the veil or to pierce the, uh, the, the boundary. So for example, uh, if, if you, uh, were, so for example, if your skin was cut by a knife, Right. Uh, it means that the envelope of the body, which is the skin, was overwhelmed by the knife. And, and technically you might say, oh, or, let's let's put it this way. If you get a paper cut, technically, medically, that's a mm-hmm. that if you were to describe what occurred to the skin, it's technically a trauma to the skin. Now, mm-hmm. it, that's not psychologically traumatic because right. psychology borrows this term to talk about what happens to the mind in overwhelming experiences. Right. But all it means is for the integrity of something to be broken or for for the integrity of something to be overwhelmed. Right. So at a trauma mm-hmm. center, you're talking about fundamental structures of the body into which external objects have erupted. Right. You're talking about bones that are crushed. You're talking about skin that's ripped. You're talking about, right, that's what trauma Mm -hmm. is. It's when something that is constituted by an integrous structure is violated or broken or unconstituted or disintegrated or or, or penetrated, okay? That's what trauma is, medically speaking. Psychologically, now, what's the analogy of that? Well, it's, it's whatever the structure is of the mind, that is broken. That is pierced. That is penetrated. Mm. Something about the mind is compromised. Now, it becomes a more dubious and abstract concept at that point because with the body, we have all of these clear and obvious metrics for it, right? Well, what is it? Well, it's a it's a broken femur, right? Well, right. it's a gash and it needs stitches. And the solution is simple. With the mind, what is the mind? You know, I mean, Descartes said, I am a thinking thing fundamentally because the thing which posits my existence is a thought and therefore I am a mind. But what is it? Yeah, I don't know. Right. Like, 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 is the mind the soul? Is it consciousness? Is it something different? Does it have have an essence? Does it have a substance? Does it have any kind of constitution or is it just a word that we use to refer to a collection of operations of the brain? You know, what is the mind? In a sense, it doesn't matter what it is, which is why, on the one hand, psychology has to borrow this term trauma from a more concrete setting because there really isn't a word for the mind because we don't know what it is. So trauma refers to something like what happens when a car lands on you. But to the mind. That would be right. And, and just like in medicine, where there is a spectrum of traumas, anything from a paper cut to a car accident. Likewise, you have a spectrum of traumas for the mind and a spectrum of severities of those traumas for the mind. So it is the overwhelming quality of an experience. Sorry, that was much longer than it should have been. PTSD, on the other hand, is that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And now I think they're calling it just PTS, post-traumatic stress, is, is the word developed. It is the, the moniker developed by the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, which publishes what we all know as the Diagnostic and, Stati- and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, version five or fifth edition, uh, which we all know as the DSM-5, right? And the right. DSM-5 publishes the specific monikers and criteria for diagnosing people with those monikers, with those psychiatric disorders or labels or, or syndromes. PTS or PTSD is the formal diagnosis of a sequelae or symptoms which occur because of an overwhelming or traumatic experience, right? Which is why you have post-traumatic. It's what happens after the trauma occurs, mm. stress. It is the stress which occurs after the overwhelming experience. That's just what unpacking that term, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, how do you understand trauma biblically? Well, there's two ways of going about that. The first one is that you could say, well, let's do a word study of the term trauma. And the, and trauma occurs a few places. Of course, in Hebrew, how do you find Greek in Hebrew? Well, the clear way is the <laughs> Septuagint, which predates most of our right. Hebrew manuscripts, so it can indicate a previous text. But in the Septuagint, you have trauma occurring a few different places, mostly in, in narrative. Uh, uh, there's one – it occurs once, I think, in Genesis 37, and it occurs once in um, – Oh, I think it I think it occurs once in one of the narratives of David, but it refers to wounds where, where it occurs in the New Testament is in, in is in uh, Luke. I think Luke 13 talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Hmm. It is that which the Good Samaritan heals. He treats the, the the English translates it the wounds of the man on the side of the road. But the Greek there is the trauma. The Good Samaritan heals the trauma 
of the person on the side of the road. And of course, there it's probably talking about physical trauma, right? It's probably talking literally, the, the, it, it wouldn't be accurate to translate the Greek word in the New Testament trauma. Right. That'd be anachronistic, trauma. right? You, 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 yeah, you would have to translate it as wounds, probably. But but so so that's one way of going about it. Uh, biblical theology of trauma, kind of a 1960s biblical theology word based study, which isn't isn't always super accurate, but can can be enlightening in some ways, some regards. Another way of understanding trauma is by saying, well, what are the symptoms of trauma, and and what are the in particular what are, what what is the symptomatology which we would characterize as traumatic? Well, it's uh, two things. Uh, uh, two opposite concepts and really creates the binary poles of traumatic experience. One is hyper numbness. The other ones is hyperactivity and the numbness, which is one in which people are and, and, and triggers cause both of these things. Okay. Mm. So, so the numbness is called dissociate dis- dissociation, or there's a class of experience called dissociative experiences and dissociative experiences are one in which you, you, you lose contact with the body. Right. And you float, you start floating, you lose hours at a time. You may even lose days. You, you, you wake up, you have flashes of memory, gaps in your memory, that kind of thing. Dissociation is when there's a, there, the, the, your mind and body lose traction with each other. Uh, and hypervigilance, on the other hand, is when you actually experience the thing that the dissociative mechanism is trying to avoid, which is you actually re-experience the traumatic event mm-hmm. and you experience all the emotions of it and they come all flooding back, usually in a, in a hyperbolic and exaggerated way so that it actually overwhelms you and can at times actually become re-traumatizing. And, and the things that trigger you back into either those hypervigilant or dissociative moments are relics of the traumatic experience. So this is where we get the term trigger warnings, right? Which most people misuse. So most people will write a blog and they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm talking about sexual abuse. So trigger warning for anybody who's been sexually abused, you might not want to read this blog or you might get triggered. That's not how triggers work. Okay. Most people who've suffered a kind of trauma are over familiar with talking about trauma. Talking about the trauma itself is very often not the trigger. Talking about the class of pain which they've experienced is often something with which the people who've been traumatized are more familiar and more comfortable with than anybody. Triggers are relics of the experience. It's going to be a particular scent or a feeling or a dream or a person or a picture, or it's going to be idiosyncratic to the traumatic experience of the individual, the way that they experienced it, you see. And when those relics or psychological artifacts, they re-manifest themselves within that person's experience, whether they confront them physically or whether it comes to mind or through a scent or through an association or through a way of relating to somebody, they will either dissociate or become hypervigilant to some degree. And that dissociative experience or that hypervigilant experience could be very minor. It could be very acute. It could be very prolonged. It could be very severe. All depends on the nature of the trauma. All depends on the way that the person internalized that trauma. And, mm-hmm. and, and so that's kind of what trauma is, how it works. A biblical, oh, sorry. The, the last thing I didn't talk about was how do you understand it biblically, right? Well, really what you're talking about there are a, a biblical theology of overwhelming experiences, Right. And so you could do everything from the fall itself being being a cosmically traumatic ex- event all the way to Paul's thorn in the flesh, which was a, a, a whatever, whatever that was. Right. It was some irrevocable, overwhelming suffering that he experienced all the way to all of the drama that occurred with Israel. Certainly lamentations represents a traumatic cry to God, a traumatized prayer. It, it peaks with hope in Lamentations three, but it ends in despair. It ends by saying, will you for sake us forever, right? And so trauma is very often uh, uh, in the throes of the, in, 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 in this, um, uh, in the volatile throes back and forth between dissociation and hypervigilance. And so you see that quite a bit. And you, and, and one of the ways that you see trauma playing itself out in scripture are characters in scripture, which are playing out their trauma on a stage or trying to resolve their trauma in different ways. So you see this in Job, you see in, in, for example, in Job, his insistence upon his innocence to the point where he's throwing away old structures because he has to, he's, he's throwing away all the religious tropes, which make sense of his whole world, which his friends are advocating for just because he's gone through this traumatic experience. And it's time for all the dross to be burned away. 
And for him, this is very traumatic. And he's wishing that he was dead. Mm -hmm. And he's contemplating suicide. And he said, curse the world, curse everything that I even been born. His body has become the site of, of, of demonic attack, of the very same demonic attack which killed his family. And you see him wrestling out with God. And people often want to construe Job as God showing up and Job saying, oh, you know what? You're right. I agree with my friends after all. But mm. no, that's not the meaning of Job. The mean that Job has a people read it with a sense of resolution, and there's no resolution. Right. There's no resolution. What it is is you have scenes, you have snapshots of confrontation, you have snapshots of trauma in Job. Likewise, you have the same thing that occurs with David and Absalom. Right. Absalom, his uh, Absalom's sister is raped. Right. And what does David do? Nothing. Nothing. He gets mad. That's all he does. Mm -hmm. And Absalom takes his sister in and spends. The, and then what is what does Absalom spend the rest of his life doing? He goes and he stands outside the gate and he and, and he meets Israelites who are coming to see David. And he says, what's your problem? I'll deal with it. And Absalom, it says it says Absalom won the hearts of the people of Israel. Right. Why? Because he spent the rest of his life trying to rectify something which was unrectifiable. It was overwhelming. Right. Mm -hmm. Because. Because even though he killed his sister's perpetrator, he still couldn't resolve it. David was still king. David still didn't do anything. He spent the rest of his life trying to rectify something that was unrectifiable. That is so typically traumatic. It is so typically traumatic to play out the same traumatic event over and over and over and over. And ultimately, Absalom ended up ended up uh, on the ethical right. A Absalom was right ethically. David should have done something, and he never did, and he never owned up to it. That's not, that that thread is never resolved mm -hmm. in the Davidic narrative. He repents for many things. He does not repent for the neglect which prompted Absalom into ethical action. He never repents for it. Huh. Absalom does. Absalom repents for David and resents him for it and spends the rest of his life acting out the traumatic uh, voice of his sister, you know, who, who can do nothing and, and who can say nothing. And so, so what does a biblical theology of trauma look like? Well, it really almost takes a story by story case to say, what are the modern, what's modern, uh, what's a modern conception of the symptomatology of trauma? And can we see that? Not, not in an eisegetical way where we're saying, well, Absalom clearly had PTSD. That's not the point. Right. The point is to say, what are the thematic resonances between the psychological realities we're explaining today and some of the narrative construals of the biblical characters? That's a legitimate exegetical task. That's a legit, legitimate exegetical methodology that we can utilize to say, well, what is the Bible's teaching on trauma? Well, well, I wrote my dissertation on that, but, but, but here, there just a couple snapshots to say that Scripture, not only does Scripture address the issues which trauma highlights, it really showcases them in a way analogous to the way that modern psychiatry has seen necessary to highlight them. And um, again, it would sort of take a text-by-text -text way, but I think we could just sum summarily yeah, just example, say that maybe. there is a biblical theology of trauma, and what it is is sort of complex, um, but, but, but that there certainly is one. There certainly is one. That's not really a satisfying answer to the question, but. Sure. So I, I have, a, yeah. I, you know, I have a, a real life example. I served in the mission field, um, was around missionaries and even our, in our own family experienced some significant um, traumatic events. Um, but I'll give you one example. You know, I was there was a, a an adult missionary kid in my church um, uh, while she was a young child, uh, she saw her older sister and her younger brother both die on the mission field, um, got sick and suddenly died. Uh, she mm. was put into a, uh, a boarding school, which was, you know, maybe not. It was a very difficult situation. I'm not sure if there was physical or abuse going on there, but it was a very difficult situation. Um, and then. Um, you know, her parents ended up leaving the field. And now here we are 40 some years later. It's her her father. We had interviewed him and did a video with pictures. Oh, and, yeah. I remember uh, you told me about this. It was a powerful story. Um, and she came up to me after the service and said, I've spent the last 40 years of my life trying to forget those moments. Um, you mm. know, and, and, and here we have this culture. Moments that the rest of the church celebrates. Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because this was like a highlight. You know, this was our, you know, an anniversary, an anniversary we wanted to celebrate. And. And, uh, a missions victory in our minds, but here for this young this this lady, uh, she took her back to 
one of the worst possible times and really a crisis of faith in her, in her heart and life. So, you know, the evangelical community, we don't do a great job understanding trauma. I mean, you're bringing up things to light that we don't really deal with well. Uh, we, we tend to, uh, if we do deal with it, we deal with it in a pop psychology way. Um, and if, if that's the truth, then missionaries even more so. Um, we kind of have a suck it up mentality. We're soldiers for Christ and, you know, we're, we're doing God's business. And, you know, I mean, I've even heard adult MKs talk about their parents, you know, putting them away in boarding schools and say, you know, like, I love you, but you know, I love these people more because they're going to hell if I don't tell them the gospel. So we're not going to invest in you as a child. You know, mm. that's the that's the message that was received by these MKs. Mm. And so so all you know, all sorts of these wow. things can be trauma inducing for missionaries, for MKs. So how should overseas, you know, how should overseas missionaries understand what they're experiencing? Um, can we you know, how, how can we encourage missionaries who are going through difficult things to understand that they may be dealing with some the effects of trauma in their lives and how to deal with that? Yeah, well, this is really where I'm sort of butting up against the the edges of my expertise here. Sure. So, yeah. I I mean, you know, so so just correct me, okay? Okay. Because, because <laughs> if I overspeak and I, I very well may overspeak, just just tell me and say that's that's actually the uh, it goes against sort of missiological common sense or whatever. So, um I would say uh, several things. First is that uh and I know I know that I know that most Credible missions agencies have a very thorough psychological vetting process for missionaries. I know that that's true. Yeah. Uh, and I know that they have to go through counseling and preparation and uh, things like that. Uh, but I would um, uh, uh, I mean, I don't I've never been through one of those. So I would just say that pe- before people go to the missions field, uh, geographically relocating is uh is itself a small t traumatic event it's going Mm. to be for you it's going to be for your whole family the emotional cost of geographically relocating is absolutely huge and so that's why you need to have your childhood traumas resolved and that's obviously that is a that's a tall order right but if you're going to take responsibility for your family and your family is your primary priority when you're on the missions field it, it ought to be it absolutely ought to be that's that's really um you know, that's, that shouldn't be up for debate, but your primary, your primary responsibility, especially if you're a husband and fathers is that is your children and your wife. Um, and so, so you need to have your childhood thing, uh, childhood traumas dealt with and you need to have them resolved. And that obviously, uh, some of that is going to be a lifelong process, but if you're going to take responsibility, becoming a missionary is, is really taking a responsibility. If, if you're not able to resolve those things sufficiently before you depart or before your departure date occurs, then you shouldn't go. You know, that's and, huge. Let me just yeah. hop in, keep going, yeah. but, but I wanted to just hop in and, and draw something out on what you said there, because there is a real cost to being a missionary that not everyone can necessarily handle. And I think we get so excited about mobilization sometimes that we tell people, Hey, it doesn't matter who you are, what your walk of life is, what your family situation is. You can, you can be a missionary, you can do it. And there's a lot of truth in that, in that anyone can have an impact. Certainly short-term missions opens up lots of opportunities. Anyone can be a sender and a mobilizer and God has a part for everybody to play in the reaching of the nations. But I think what you bring out is, is, is just a, a little bit of balance to that, which is understanding, you know, there, there might be things in your family um, or in your personal history or just in your, your situation in life that maybe make it realistic for you, maybe to, to, to think that, man, well, maybe it's not time for me to live overseas right now, or maybe full-time ministry isn't what's healthiest for my family. And I, I think it's just, we as evangelicals aren't always willing to acknowledge our limitations. Scott, do you think that that's fair? We we have this rah rah kind of rally cry, and we we have to acknowledge like not, not sometimes it's just you, you're not you're not you're not the savior to the world, right? We have to acknowledge our, our limits. So I don't yeah. know. That was something that came to mind for me while while you were sharing there. Yeah, I thought that was worth drawing out. I think it's it's important that we're in a healthy place before we engage in something that's going to be it is going to be tra- to take it traumatic. serious, Maybe yeah, not in the capital T, but in a small T way. Yeah, and if you can't handle that, then you know, take that seriously. Count the cost. I guess all that to say. So go ahead, Paul. Continue. Yeah, and that sort of resonates with the message of I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, psychology professor at University of Toronto, recently became sort of a pop cultural icon. Who his whole motto is just to clean your room. 
if you clean your room, then you can start thinking about changing the world, right? Mm. Like, like, but like the way to, we all bear some responsibility for the beauty and the ugliness that exists in the world. And the primary way that we change the world is by changing ourselves. And that doesn't mean that there aren't bigger uh, missions in which we can participate or in more specified ways in, in the way that Christian missions often does. But, but just that it's very easy, especially in, in your younger twenties to get caught up in the zeal of, I mean, Carl Jung calls your early twenties and late ad- adolescence, the messianic stage of your life. And, and by that, he doesn't mean that you literally think you're Jesus. He just means you have a savior complex mm-hmm. and it's very important for missionaries <laughs> that they, they need to be able to distinguish between God's genuine calling and a psychological trope, which occurs among their age group. And, and it's very easy to miss out on an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to resolve some serious psychological issues that you have, even if you weren't abused as a child, even if you haven't had traumas, some sort of issues you have to work through. And you have to be mindful of that before you take on such a, just such an enormous responsibility. I would say more so even just than resolving your traumas, you need to have a certain behavioral and emotional checklist that you can check off. And people will say, well, it's not fair. You know, missions, uh, uh, it's, it's too stringent and, you know, they're requiring perfect people to be missionaries. Well, you don't have to be perfect to be a missionary, but I would say similar to being a pastor, Paul has higher qualifications for pastors for a reason, because they have higher yeah. responsibilities. They need, they need to have a higher ten, uh, uh, moral tinsel strength than, than the average person. They that, just do. That's so true. That applies to all the full-time pastors listening as well. Cause what our audience is not just missionaries. It's people, um, like myself that, that are based and have ministries here, um, domestically. And it brings to mind second Timothy chapter two. There's, there's also sorts of vessels in the house. There's some for honorable and dishonorable use. And if you cleanse yourself from what's dishonorable, then you'll be set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It's that similar concept of, of ministry does start at home and yep. it starts with bringing your life into, um, in, in the submission of the Lordship of Christ and, and opening up every part of your, your heart and your past and your life and your history to God, um, and doing the same thing in your, your marriage, doing the same thing with your children. And then uh, if the Lord would open the door for you to do that in a new culture um, with, with people overseas, do it, but do it in that order is, is sort of what you're saying. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, here, here's another question then. What can we do um, kind of as we wind things down to begin to make it more safe for, um, we could talk about missionaries, but I think pastors also figure into this conversation. Anyone who's involved in ministry, make it more safe to talk about um, the fact that we aren't messiahs, right? As you put it, we're, that we're not, that we're not all heroes and that, that there is real baggage that we can deal with uh, without embracing a, a culture that, that maybe that denies you know, that, that as men you know, and, and women, but particularly, you know, for men, you do have to sometimes grin and bear it. Right. And there should be a certain grit to our work, to our ministry. Um, and I, I know you've spoken a lot about masculinity too there. So maybe there's some overlap, but how do we make it uh, safe? And, and we, how can we develop these settings where we can talk about this openly? Um, so that's someone who's in ministry. Um, you know, there, there's the temptation. They don't want to fully disclose everything that they're going through because then it might disqualify them. People would see them other, they would see them differently, especially if you're living overseas. If you've moved your whole family overseas and if you admit you have some problems, you're, you're instantly thinking, all right, my, my missions board is going to call me back home or somehow this is going to close doors for me. There's so many reasons not to be transparent there. So what can we do to, to open some avenues of conversation for people? Well, I have a few thoughts about that. The first one is just an institutional problem of, Christianity more broadly. And, and it, and it's stuck. I mean, you're stuck in, a, in between the Scylla and Charybdis of having a high moral Christian ideal. So seeking something bigger than yourself, which is necessary. And at the same time, uh, 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 engaging honestly and openly the fact of your failure and the fact of your shortcoming and dealing with that tension is, uh, well, right now, the way that things are set up, it's that the best people in Christianity are uh, are either, as Jordan Peterson puts it, well-behaved cowards or they're just lying because nobody's perfect and nobody's being perfectly transparent, especially when their their paycheck 
incentivizes them not to be right. And you're essentially incentivized every every paycheck you give somebody that hangs on them not committing this particular list of of sins or that you say, well, when you do this, it kind of that you know there's this sort of informal rule that you're going to have the chances of your you know uh, the the chances of your employment being renewed are going to go down or something like that. You're 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 incentivizing people not to be honest about those things. And so you want, on the one hand, to be able to enforce higher standards, and yet, on the other hand, to have the flexibility to deal with these things. And and uh, one of the ways is by by having a community, and that's one of the things that are having a community in which you can be open and honest, and and yet with people who are striving for the same ideal. Because I don't think people see that as a necessity. People don't people don't see uh, uh, an intentional community, something like the Samson Society, not an accountability group, but a place where you can come together and speak openly and honestly where you're not you're not you know measuring your moral successes every time and creating a hierarchy every time you get together but you're actually bearing one another's burdens people say oh you're a missionary you got food you got water great good to go you got community nah man i can do it on my own i'm right. good the arrogance of that yeah it, no i mean you 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 can't you can't mm-hmm. you will fail if you don't have that open community in which you can be brutally honest without risking your job if you don't have that community you, it's not if failure is not a matter of if, but when, hundred mm-hmm. percent, and and that failure may not be public. You know, it may look like a perfectly successful ministry career, but it's something for which you're going to be held accountable by God. And the question is, do you care enough about? Uh, do you care about? Uh, do you care enough about your own moral integrity and the own the 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 the, the integrity of your own moral constitution and your psychological well being to find and build this community for yourself? And and I've found that the 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 place that can handle that tension between searching for an ideal that's higher than you and engaging the fact that you often fall fall short of that ideal, even to great degrees you fall short of it. The only place that can handle that it's not the institution. It's it's not with your boss. It's with a local community of people that you find mm-hmm. loyal and trustworthy mm-hmm. and respectful. Which is if what the local church should be, but oftentimes falls short of that ideal, of course. Yes, exactly right. Uh, oftentimes, and, and and many times, the way that people fall short, to a great degree, I, I, I was for, for a long time, and I'm actually, I just moved to Indianapolis, and I'm trying to get another group together now. For, for a long time in my life, I would uh, go to weekly meetings with a group called the Samson Society. Are you, are you guys familiar with them? Name of this group? No. I'd love to know. Oh, more. you got to check it out, man. It's great. People think of it as like, oh, it's like a Christian AA thing for porn, but it's not. It's so much more than that. Guys, um, it's, it's, it's where it, they go through a liturgy and they confess things and there are, there are certain rules. It's so, so sort of formal almost. It's almost like a quasi Anglican type parachurch ministry that's extremely informal. All you have to do is go on the website, Samson Society. And uh, download the documents and you can get anybody together and it's all free. I mean, and you just mm. do it yourself and you get a group of guys together. I went to that for a long time. It was so helpful, so helpful. And guys were confessing to things that I'm like, oh, my God, I, I didn't realize that Christians were struggling with these things. But but uh, it, but 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 it's good that they're talking. It's good that they're saying these things. And, and missionaries are no better than other people. And that's not a dog on missionaries. It's just it's just to say it's it's a point where you have to say, hey. I'm I'm a human being. I have a need for intentional community if I'm going to be seeking a higher ideal, which credentials me to do what I'm doing. Because being a missionary is not just about having a job. It's about being credentialed to do so spiritually and vocationally. And if you can't measure up to that, well, then that's not good. Then that means it's not a fit. And the only way to measure up to it is to find a community which can manage the tension between seek, seeking an ideal and being an inconsistent and failing human being. So if you find that, your chances of success as a missionary and your chances of success as a Christian uh, uh, exponentially increase. And if you fail that, you basically guarantee well, that, that, that also dovetails perfectly into a sponsor that we've been discussing on the show yeah. recently for the last month through our Global Gospel Fund at ABWE. I mean, one, one of the things that pastors don't always, always realize when they're looking at sending people and they're looking at missions agencies and you think, do I, do I want a full service missions agency that'll do everything or do we just want a clearinghouse um, that'll help channel funding to people, but we can you know keep a lot of the, the leadership and training everything uh, within the domain of, of just local churches that are 
are that are connected to each other through partnership. Uh, but Scott, member care is one of those areas that a missions agency provides. I mean, it's a department within the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, ABWE, we have an awesome member care team ourselves. Um, but but member care can be filling some of these functions, right? Yeah, and that's the hard thing is that when someone's hurting, they may not have the money they need, or they don't feel like they're going to get the support that they need to take a break from from their the trauma they're going through. We've had lots of missionaries go through. Some of it's dramatic, you know, like there's a, there's a refugee crisis and 400,000 refugees just showed up on my doorstep and I'm working 24 seven to care for them. But sometimes it's very personal. You know, like my child was hurt at school, you know, or, you know, my, my, a ministry partner I worked with died suddenly, or my marriage is in crisis. Um, and here I am trying to serve the Lord. And I've got this, this massive problem and you need help. You need to be able to reach out to, for ABWE, it's member care in your local church are two ways that you can receive the help that you need. Yeah. It's, it's it, realizing that quote unquote ministry professionals still need um, people who have qualifications to speak into some of these things and and offer meaningful counsel. So we're running short on time, but I do want to ask you this one last question, if you, if you wouldn't mind, you know, what, what if that me or Paul, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. You Alex. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, you Paul. Uh, so, So, Sometimes someone might find themselves out there and say, hey, I would love to be in that kind of a community where I could open my heart out and I can't. Um, uh, but I'm in a situation where I can't. Um, what advice would you give just from God's word um, and from your research to say to someone who's who's hurting? How, how can you begin even trying to heal yourself? And I, I realize yourself is a loaded term because I'm really talking about how, how spiritually can you begin to see that healing when you don't have a community that understands the value of of, of what we're talking about today? Right. Yeah, well, there are two kinds of therapy. There are sort of depth psychology like Freud, Young, psychoanalysis, or even even more cognitive behavioral grief oriented therapists who are going to want to sort of make meaning out of your childhood or that are that are uh, by nature in process more prolonged. And then there are solution focused therapists and solution focused therapists, as you might guess, are very gifted. Well, good ones are gifted at, uh, at helping you find solutions to problems which you can't fix on your own or out of which you can't see on your own. And so I would say if you're in a place where you simply can't find a community, then, but you, you could have access to therapy, get a, find a, solu- a solution-focused therapist that you can go to online and go through that therapist and, uh, and and make your primary goal to be to build that community. Say, that's the problem for which I need a solution, and they will help you to do it. And then you build that community because not having a community is not an option. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody to say, well, I guess I'm just going to live my life. I need to figure out how to cope without a community. It's the road to death. I mean, you're walking alone. It's it's never going to work. It's not going to work. That's not how life is meant to be lived. That's not. It's not feasible. It's not functional. It's not practical. It's it's a guaranteed fail. And so that's not to say that if you don't have a community, well, you're destined for failure. No, you can find a solution. You may need help finding that solution, and that's why solution-oriented therapists are really good. Uh, uh, and if you can't afford a solution oriented, uh, uh, a solution oriented, uh, therapist, well, then you're just in the difficult place of being poor and being alone. And now you have to figure out the hard way through doing your own homework, how to build a community for yourself. And the question is how much are like, when will you admit that it, it is something you need? Because you're, because when you don't have access to a solution focused therapist, and you don't have access to a community, your resources are limited and the cost of building that community becomes higher, even though you're in a poorer position. And that's unfair to you. That's unfair. That's, a, that's not a good place to be. It's not fair to you that you're in that place, but you're there. And it's the only way out. The only way out is up. And you simply have to climb out of that hole by yourself. And, and it's the worst way to do it. It's the worst way to climb out of a hole is by yourself, but sometimes that's a, it's a necessary phase of life. It's a necessary consequence of not having cultivated that community for the past several years or not having found it important. It's an unfortunate price to pay. You shouldn't have to pay that price. It's actually detrimental to finding a new community, but it's necessary. Whatever means necessary, you're either going to choose two options. Yes, this community is valuable to me. Yes, building a place that can hold intention, my ideals and my failures at the same time. Yes, it's difficult to build. 
but it's necessary and it's worth it. And I'm either going to choose the pursuit of this community or I'm going to choose failure. And so, so, so some people have that community and if they do have that community, well then good. Then you, you, you can hear what I'm saying right now and say, yeah, it's absolutely necessary. And there's so much more to it than that. But of course, this is one of the indispensable, uh, indispensable elements of success vocationally as a missionary, spiritually as a Christian. You have to have it. You yeah. Have to have it. And that's huge because technology is making it even more possible to do some of those very practical steps that you give for yes. missionaries. If you're, if you're living overseas, even in a developing nation, um, you yeah. still have access to someone with credentials online uh, yep. to at least give you some guidance, as you put it, you know, some solution uh, oriented uh, therapy, but um, some, some instruction on how can I, how can I find community where I'm at now? Maybe it's on my missionary team with people of my own agency or, or other agencies and things like that. Don't let the fact that you are isolated, that you are in ministry, make you feel more boxed in than you are necessarily. And, you know, I think we do see an example here with Job as someone who his whole community turned on him. You know, mm-hmm. his entire yeah. community turned on him. Wow, yeah. And and even though, you know, it, it, it was it was his wrestling with God himself, wrestling through these these challenges where, um, it was he had to in the end he ended up finding his his consolation in the mystery and greatness of God, even though there was no real resolution to why these bad things were happening to him. Um, he was in the end, it seems like, able to at least recognize God is greater than me, and I need to trust Him. Yeah, he was able to mm-hmm. take some step in that direction, uh, even without maybe the perfect support system. But uh, God was was working through that that messy situation in his life as well. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining us here today. And we're, we we could go a lot longer, and maybe that just means that we'll have to have you back and dive into some of these things at a deeper level. Um, but for now, because we want to leave people still wanting more, uh, how can people hear from you and follow you? and what you've written and uh, some of the other work that you're doing. I I know you do a lot on, obviously, social media and you have your websites, but also I guess your dissertation is coming out of the new year. Is that right? Yeah. uh, Yeah. My publisher has been very slow on this. My dissertation is being published with Fortress Academic. If you you follow my stuff on SelfWire, I would actually, uh, if you just go to the selfwire.org website, there's an email sign up right there. You'll be notified when any new content or especially my dissertation gets published, which, which wrestles specifically with the, uh, the way that, um, children who are, uh, boys who are abused sexually, uh, internalize positively and negatively aspects of new Calvinist theology when they become adults. So that's, that's my dissertation. So yeah, I would just say go to selfwire.org, sign up for the email list and, uh, I'll update you on all that stuff. And that's probably the best way to stay in contact with me. And if you want to get fit too, you can also go to Theofit, right? And yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've yeah. used the core series a lot. That's oh yeah, I'm a walking example of what can happen to someone's body when they follow your teaching. So I just want to throw that out there. Great. Yes, good. Well, right, I'm and we're privileged. hiding behind the mic. Yes, yes, yes. I'm pri- I'm privileged that you guys would find that useful, and uh, I'm I'm glad that it's up there. I actually created that resource. I created Theofit for pastors because I had so many. Obviously, being in seminary, being in sort of Christian writing circles, I had so many pastor friends and seminary friends who were just gaining a bunch of weight. And I was staying fit. Oh, you're talking to Baptists, man. It's, I mean, we, you know, we have the spiritual gift of potlucking. So yeah, it's rough. It's rough for you guys. I understand. You know, Presbyterians, they, they get all this same calories, but they get it through beer and scotch. (laughs) Hey, I'm just, I just tell myself I'm getting ready for the, uh, the big tug of war game at the annual church picnic. That's all. (laughs) That's That's right. That's what it is. Someone's got to be an anchor. Bulking season. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Paul, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And, uh, if this is, um, uh, helpful for you guys. Uh, Paul, is there a way that, that I guess I could just follow you on Twitter or is there a way to, to directly message you? Yeah, you can just go to selfwire.org slash contact and there's a contact form there. You can write me a whole email. I'll get it in my email box. You can follow me on Twitter, Paul C. Maxwell, Instagram, Paul C. Maxwell. And uh, yeah, you can find all my stuff there. All right. Thanks again for this conversation. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please make sure that you also give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com, along with any other ideas for future episodes. And until next time, thank you for joining us.